All right. I was in a Bible class some years back at Oklahoma Christian University. Pull me down just a little bit. Uh, I was in a Bible class at Oklahoma Christian University a few years ago, and the professor asked us, and this is a grad class, there's seven or eight of us in the room, all of us were in some level of ministry, and he said, who is the greatest missionary really in the New Testament? And, and it felt like a trick question, but we all kind of went, Paul? Was, yeah, of course it's Paul. He's all over the, the New Testament. He's everywhere. He wrote the most letters. He's preaching all over the world. He's, he's, yeah, what other answer is there? Okay, good. We got one answer right. He says, now, if he's the greatest missionary and he's starting this movement, this Christian church, and he's getting everything going, um, what are the passages where he tells everyone else that they should go be missionaries and share everyone, uh, share the gospel with everyone else? Uh, give me all the passages where Paul talks about that. And we went, sure, there's... The room got really quiet. We all started wondering if we had just forgotten the entire New Testament. And he goes, what do you got? And, and someone goes, well, there's the Great Commission. Yeah, but that's Jesus talking to the apostles. So when does Paul talk about evangelism? He talks about how some are gifted to be evangelists. He says, yeah, but that's about gifting. Uh, we came up with, uh, but always be prepared in season and out of season to give someone a reason for your faith. Uh, but being ready to talk about your faith if someone asks is very different than door knocking and doing evangelism, going out and telling and finding and seeking the lost and giving them the good news. And pretty quickly, we realized that, that we weren't just forgetting large chunks of Paul. He really doesn't talk about that much. And I think it is rooted in the idea that we talked about a few weeks ago, that within the body of Christ, that there are some who are just gifted to be evangelists. And you don't have to tell an evangelist to evangelize. You really can't stop them. If you've met a few of these people before, you know that when they go and meet a stranger, uh, it's, hello, my name is, have you met my friend Jesus? You know that's like every time you go to a restaurant. Um, so some of us are just wired that way. And Paul knows that. And he writes that into his letters. But he doesn't call everyone to proclaim the gospel. But he does call every single follower of Jesus to become the gospel. And so he doesn't spend a lot of time saying, go preach the gospel, but he spends so much time. In fact, to some extent, all of his letters are about how to become the gospel. So that when people look at you, they don't say, you tell me the gospel all the time. But what they do is they look at you and they say, it's clear to me that you are the embodiment of the good news of Jesus Christ. That you're living this out in all kinds of different ways. And when we look today at how that becomes part of our life, we're going to really be looking at how that happens in our households, in our relationships with the people that we spend the most time with. Because Paul, over and over again, and this comes up all over his, his letter of, to the Ephesians, it is that we are going to become the body of Jesus. We're going to become the body of Jesus in the world. We're going to become images of Jesus that the world might see Christ in us and through us. We are going to become the temple. In, in Paul's time, people would travel from all over the world to see God's temple in Jerusalem so that they could see where God dwelt and they could understand who he was and they could see how he interacted with his people. Paul says that doesn't happen in this geography anymore. It happens in your body. That as a follower of Jesus, people are going to see God in you the way they used to see him in this building. 
that you are being built into a temple, we become the gospel. What does that look like in Ephesians? It looks like people who used to be dead and are now alive. It looks like people who once were separated from God and one another, that the walls that separated them were completely torn down, and that they're now united as one people that used to be separated. Becoming the gospel in Ephesians looks like people who used to carry the characteristics of the old humanity and now carry on and live out the characteristics of the new humanity. And last week we talked about all the different ways that the new humanity doesn't just replace the old, but it is healing for the brokenness of the old humanity. That this new way of living solves and replaces and heals what used to be broken and dead inside of us. And that the gospel, when we start to become that kind of gospel people, heals us and makes us look like new humans. And the thing we're going to talk about today is how when we become the gospel, it's not just in ourselves, it's in how we interact with our family. It's how we interact with those that we have influence over. It's how we interact with anyone we have a relationship with, but especially the people we are the closest to. Your daily interactions are an opportunity for you to become the good news of Jesus Christ. That you can live in your relationships and how you interact with other people in a way that reveals God to the world through the way you treat people and allow others to treat, to treat you. And so this is Paul's vision. And as we move into this, we really need to understand how consistent Paul is in all of his letters and in all of his writing. His, his thought and understanding is so consistent that if you understand him in Philippians, you better understand him in Galatians, and you better understand him in, in, in Ephesians. And all of these letters kind of get tied together. I may have said Ephesians twice. Uh, no, Philippians. I said it right. Uh, so let's go to Philippians briefly. This was the passage that was read to us this morning. Because as we approach the household code in Ephesians 5 and 6, we need to begin by recognizing that when we hear the gospel, we have two options of how we can approach it. And, I, and I'm going to kind of call these options today two postures. We have two postures with which we can approach the good news of Jesus Christ. The first posture is that we can approach the good news in a Philippians 2 Jesus posture. And here's, here's how Philippians 2 describes what it means to understand the gospel and to live it out. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have you received any of those benefits and blessings? I think we have. Then be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So he starts by saying, and you may have noticed, this comes up in my preaching all the time, and the reason it comes up in my preaching all the time is this passage is what is often referred to uh, as Paul's kerygma. It's the core. It's the, the, the single most concise explanation in Paul's writing as to his entire understanding of what's happening on the cross and what it means to be the people of the cross. 
is if you have received any blessing from Jesus, then quit doing things in your own interest and put others first. Quit being ambitious and selfish and instead be generous and giving. But why, Paul, do we do that? And he goes on and he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so you understand that that Jesus' story is this, is that he began in, in very nature God, that he began with all power and authority and all glory belonging to him in the same way that it belonged to the Father, and he gave it all up, becoming a man, one of us, a human, with all of the challenges and weaknesses that come with humanity, then becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, a total emptying of himself. And it's when he totally emptied himself and was willing to give everything to be obedient to God and for the sake of us that God exalts him. He's not doing, Jesus isn't doing all this for his own benefit. He's not doing it so that he can be exalted himself. But when he completely empties himself, God exalts him and places him at the highest place that every knee should bow to Jesus. This is Paul's explanation of the gospel. Is this U-shaped pattern where Jesus goes from glory to absolutely emptied, to then glorified by God, to the glory of God, not even at the end of the passage of Jesus. And he says, if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you didn't have to. He died on the cross to teach you how to live. That you would also have all the power that you have in whatever realm that you have power, and you would willingly empty yourself and give that up for the sake of being obedient to God and for the sake of others, so that then you don't have to lift yourself up. God does it for you. And that God then lifts you up And this is Ephesians again, right? That God places us in Christ who is seated at the right hand of God and gives us the very power that resurrected Jesus from the grave. That's the glorification that we get for being in Jesus. So that this U-shaped pattern of gospel living becomes our story too. This is the posture that we can choose to have if we want to have a Jesus Philippians 2 posture when we approach uh, Ephesians chapter 5, the household code. Or there's another alternative. There's a story in Acts of someone else who approaches the gospel very differently. And so the second posture that you can choose as you approach approach Ephesians 5 or any other part of the gospel story or the the epistles that come out of it uh, is, is this. In Acts chapter 8, and I don't have this text up on the screen. You can read along if you'd like to. It's Acts chapter 8, starting uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, 
This man is rightly called the great power of God. That's quite a nickname for a sorcerer, isn't it? The great power of God is his nickname. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share of this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. You see, Simon sees the good news in the gospel, and he sees the power that comes from being in Christ and the spirit that you received, and, and he sees that, and he says, can I buy this power? Because people used to call me, back before I became a Christian, they became a Christian, they were baptized into Jesus, they used to call me the great power of God, and I really liked being called the great power of God. And I really liked being the one that people traveled for miles to see uh, all the tricks that I could do and the magic that I had and the sorcery that I was able to perform, and I really liked all of that. And it turns out if it, there's in, in this church, there's a way that I could still be the big deal and the big show and the great power of God. Can I buy this power from you? I would just like a little bit of this power because then people would think that I'm still the greatest. When we take on the posture of Christ in Philippians 2, the question that we ask is this, how can I give up my power voluntarily to get others closer to God? When we have the posture of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, what we ask ourselves when we see the gospel is how can I get closer to God to gain power over others? The gospel will always cause people to respond with these two questions. The question is which one are you going to choose as the posture that you take as you engage with scripture? The posture of Jesus or the posture of Simon the sorcerer? Now let's head back over to Ephesians chapter 5. We're now getting into the text that we have today now that we've got these postures or lenses that we can use to read what Paul is teaching us about how family should function. Because there's way too often in the church's history, Ephesians 5, more than many other texts, has been read through the posture of Simon the sorcerer. And it's been used to secure power for those who have had power in the past and would like more in the future. 
And the way that you do that is mostly by only reading the bits of the story that you like and ignoring the other ones and yelling them louder than the people who don't have as loud of a voice as you do. So here's how Ephesians 5 tells us that we should live with one another if we're going to become the gospel and the image of Jesus that the world can see. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And that's it. That's the end of the story. So there you go. You go home, wives behave accordingly, right? Oh, he keeps going. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and his wife must respect her husband. Now, the key to really getting this is, is one, we've got to keep our postures in mind. Are we going to approach this with the posture of Philippians 2 or the posture of Simon the Sorcerer? And the second one is this, is we really need to ask, Paul, you keep going forth, back and forth between Jesus and the church and, and husbands and wives. What are you talking about? Could you at least tell us which one you're talking about? Oh, he does. In verse 32, he says, this is a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What are you talking about, Paul? I'm talking about Christ and the church. I just told you that. I thought you were telling wives that they should submit to their husbands. And he said, well, you only read half the story. I also said husbands should submit to their wives. But I'm telling you, I'm really talking about, about Christ and the church. He says, but the other is also true. This is verse 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. He's using marriage as an illustration, a good Christ-like marriage, as an illustration to teach you about Christ and the church. And then at the end of it, he has to say, I I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's a mystery. But also, by the way, husbands and wives should also love each other this way. And this goes back to that reality that Paul's thinking and understanding of Jesus and his emptying of himself to be exalted by God permeates everything about how he thinks Christians should live. It should affect your marriage. It should affect your home. It should affect your interactions with other people and how you're united with them. And so he says, all through this, he's really talking about how Christ and the church serve each other. And they submit to one another willingly and voluntarily for the sake of one another. And if you ask yourself, who serves more, Jesus serving the church or the church serving Jesus, you're getting to the heart of what Paul is trying to say here. 
it's hard to figure out who should be serving one another more because Jesus died to save the church. How could you serve more than that? And yet the church is called to a life of service and obedience to Jesus, that we're in Jesus Christ and we're the body of Christ and we're doing the things that he would have us to do and living the way that he would have us to live. That over and over again in all of these situations and circumstances, that, that what you see is that we are called to serve Jesus and Jesus is called to serve us. It's this mutual submission between Jesus and the church and the church and Jesus. And he says, but also, things should be that way in your marriage too, shouldn't they? If you understand Philippians 2 and you understand Ephesians 5, then it's going to have an impact on your marriage. And by that same measure, you could even ask yourself, well, well what then would be the impact be on a marriage in crisis? What could you do? You could go to Ephesians chapter 4, another passage where Paul's talking about how people should get along. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says uh, in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Who's that teaching for? That teaching is for a group of Christians who are trying to live together in a united way. That teaching is for a group of people that have differences and challenges and all kinds of different things that want to divide them, but instead are uniting them. How does it do it? Through humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. Well, if that's the same thing that helps the church to get along, and in Ephesians 5, he's telling the church how to get along, and it also applies to husbands and wives, then all of these teachings, if they apply in the church, they apply in your marriage. So who should submit? He says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why? Because Christ submitted to us first as an example so that we might know how to submit to one another. You want a good marriage? You treat each other like Jesus treats us. And if your question is, wait, are you talking to husbands? Or are you talking to wives right now? If you're sitting there as I'm, I'm going through this lesson and you're elbowing the person next to you, you need to figure out how to elbow yourself back. Because this is a call to mutual submission. And he continues. He doesn't stop just in the marriage. He continues in chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he stopped. Children, just obey. Clean your room like, like I told you to. This is going to be really fun in the next service when I get to tell my kids that God told them to do everything I tell them to do. It's fantastic. Except that he keeps going. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You also have to know that not only is he continuing this same train of thought, that if you have power, you should give it up to bring others closer to God, instead of taking your ability to get close to God so that you can have greater power over others. He's not only being consistent in that thought, but he's continuing to bring increasingly diverse power dynamics into the conversation. Is it true with husbands and wives? Yeah. 
Is it true with fathers and their children? Think about how much different the power differential is there. It's even greater. And he says, listen, uh, children, obey your parents. Parents, don't get in the way of your kids. Don't exasperate your children. Bring them up in the training and in, in, in obedience to the Lord. There's this instruction that there is this mutual submission. He's consistent in that. And you also need to understand that you don't age out of these rules. Um, there's actually no scripture in all of the Bible, as far as I can tell, that is only written to minors. That when you're 18, you age out of one of the commandments. Honor your father and mother until you're 18, and then you're no longer legally required to do so. The commandments were written to adults, all of them, all 10. You don't age out of any of them. So as a child, if you're still uh, of an age that your parent is still your parent, the, uh, the instruction still applies. Now he keeps going. The power differential is going to get even greater now. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Slaves, as you are obedient to your masters, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So this passage like the others that we've talked about today, has at times been used to promote false lies. All lies are false. To, to promote lies about power and slavery and what God approves of and what God doesn't approve of. When we ask the question about did Paul support slavery, uh, that's a very difficult question. At the time that Paul lives and in the world that Paul lived in, there had never been a society that was slave-free where people could have equal rights and could all vote to choose their leaders. Paul didn't know that that was an option that was out there. No one had given him that option. And so to some extent, asking Paul, hey, Paul, how do you feel about slaves being set free or do you think they should stay in slavery is a little bit like asking him, uh, Paul, how many hours a day should I let my kids watch Netflix? He doesn't talk about that because it doesn't exist in the world where he existed. He can only write with the understanding and knowledge of the world where he lives, and he can't write about hypothetical worlds that he can't even imagine. As I was trying this week to think about what it would be like for us is imagine in 100 years, in the year 2221, or just for fun, the year 2222, it's, it's the year of the four twos. And by then, society has decided that all debt is a moral evil. Credit card debt, moral evil. House debt, moral evil. And that anyone that allows debt to happen is evil and is promoting a moral evil. Now, that's not completely impossible to imagine, but you're coming up with all kinds of objections about, like, well, I mean, it's not evil. 
It's what we all do. But if the world in the future decides that it is, they would look back on the writings of Christian financial advisors today who tell you how to manage your debt and have good debt and how to eliminate debt. And they're giving all these Christian rules about how to manage your debt in a Christian way. And they would look at that and they would say, that is completely reprehensible that the church of the past taught on how to live well within debt. That's an absurdity. That's evil that they would do that. We look back on Paul in the same way. Now, if Paul could come to our world today and, and see a world where all people have equal rights and that we're increasingly moving towards places where people uh, have equal standing in society, would he say, you guys don't understand, e slavery is built into the fabric of this world, you need to bring it back. No, he wouldn't say that. Because he would understand that the setting free of people who were once in bondage and are now free is more consistent with a gospel that says that if you have power, you give it up so that others can get closer to God so that we can all be glorified in the end. He would understand that. That the end of slavery is consistent with the gospel. And that becoming the gospel is done better when we exalt people who have no or less power than we do. When we give up our power for their sake. Would Paul come into the world and say, listen, I think it's better when power in families is one person has all the power and no one else does and they hold it over the others and they're tyrants. No. Paul is calling people within culture and within the world that he lives in for us to, within our culture and within the world we live in, if you are a person with power, give it up for the sake of obedience to God and so that others might come closer to him and God will lift you up, so quit worrying about holding on to your power all the time. So when we approach these texts... You read them and you think, am I approaching these texts through the posture of Philippians 2 and saying, can I submit like Jesus submitted for my sake? Or are we approaching the text like Simon the sorcerer who says, oh boy, if I read this just the right way, I can get closer to God and his word in a way that gives me power over those I already have power over. Because that's how these texts have been used before. And it's not consistent with Paul, who is incredibly consistent with how he understands what the gospel's all about and how we live it if we're going to become it. And the beauty of this is that when we approach these texts and our relationships like Jesus and not Simon the sorcerer, we ask ourselves, how can I give up my power to get others closer to God and not how can I get closer to God so that I can have more power? And it's when we do that, that that we have a gospel that works in any culture and in any house. Do you have a family or a culture that is matriarchal? This, this lens works. Is it patriarchal where the men have all the power and the influence? This lens works. Do you live in a world where the power belongs to, to the kids or to the parents? Or if you go over to countries that are in the eastern part of the world where it belongs to the, the older members of society, in our world, in our country, world, in our country, uh, we live in a country where, where youth is valued and given priority. In other countries, especially ancient cultures, uh, age is given more honor and priority. Well, does this work 
in, in a culture that, that values age and a culture that values youth? Yes. If you understand that what Paul is saying is, whatever power you have been given, whatever honor and respect you have been given, give it up for the sake of obedience to God and so that others might get closer to Jesus voluntarily. God will exalt you. He already has. You're already seated at the right hand of the throne of God in Christ. With all the power, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, you've already got that. So why are you clinging to this pathetic tyrant power on this world? Let that go and choose the power that already exists in you in heaven. So change your household. Submit to one another. There's still countries in our world today where slavery exists. And if you are in one of those countries today and you say, listen, it's legal, what's the big deal? The big deal is this, if you understand the gospel, you have an obligation to willingly give up your power over that other human. You should be the person that's being the gospel by setting your slaves free. That was really true in the past. It stays true today that, that God is about this, this giving up a power to exalt others for the sake of the kingdom. So you have to choose in your marriage, in your relationship with your parents and your kids, in your relationships with the people you work with and anyone that you have power over, you have to choose. Are you going to be like Jesus? Or are you going to be like Simon the sorcerer? If you've received any blessing in Christ, any kindness, any compassion, any love or mercy, that I invite you to be like Jesus Christ, sharing the same mindset, who gave up everything, even towards death on the cross. The end of this, the last verse, and we'll end with, with this here in just a second, is this, in verse nine. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism in him. I said that a little bit goofy, but here's what he's saying. And what you need to ask yourself is, is this a promise with hope or a threat? Is this a promise with hope or a threat? Listen to it again and ask yourselves that question. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Is it a promise with hope or a threat. Now here's the thing, if you have a master who is oppressive to you, if you have a husband who is oppressive to you, or a parent who is oppressive to you, and you hear this, this is a promise that God doesn't show favoritism like this world does, and when you get to heaven, he's going to sort it out. And that gives you incredible hope, because if this world has beat you up and spit you out, you need to know that all the things and people in this world that said you're nothing don't mean anything when you get to your master who's in heaven and he says you're everything and you always have been. And I'm going to sort this out. The promise is that he will lift you up. But if you're the oppressor, if you've benefited from the favoritism of this world, if you've benefited from the influence and power that this world has given you, don't plan on cashing that favoritism in when you get to heaven because the master who's there isn't interested in the favoritism of this world. He's going to sort it out. So in your relationships with one another, 
Don't be like Simon the sorcerer who is told, if you don't repent, you're going to be in big, big trouble because your master's going to sort it out. You've got to be like Jesus who humbles himself so that God exalts you because God's going to sort it out. It gets sorted out then. We need to be in the business of sorting it out now. If you need to respond today, to the gospel that Jesus Christ emptied himself so that you might be saved, so that you might be seated at the right hand of God with him in power. If you want that power, not to lord it over others, but so that you can willingly give it up so that they might come closer to God as you need to today. If you need to respond to that or have any other needs in prayer, please come forward now as we stand and worship together.